I made many mistakes throughout my pastorate, and many of them center on me wrongly making assumptions about someone, especially early on in my ministry, when I was trying really hard to connect with people in our community while not really knowing them. When I would greet people after service by the sanctuary doors, in order to make a connection, I would try to mention a personal fact about them, but I didn't have the facts and was making an assumption based on what I saw. For example, I commented to someone, oh, when is the baby due? Only to hear a reply back, Pastor, I'm not pregnant. I was so embarrassed. I will never make that assumption again. Blame it on me being a young pastor in my late 20s. I've also asked someone, is this your girlfriend? To which the guy at church responded, no, she's my sister. I made a mental note not to try to make any more relationship assumptions. I've been guilty of commenting to a new couple who approached me to shake my hands. Oh, this must be your father. To which the reply was, no, this is my husband. And yes, it has happened in reverse when I've commented, oh, this must be your daughter. To which the response was, no, this is my wife. You know, it's really hard to guess age among Asians because everyone looks so young. So I stopped doing that. Nowadays, I would just simply wave high and say good morning, afraid to make any more wrong assumptions. Assumptions are that which you believe to be true, but you don't have any facts to prove that it is indeed true. And while at times it makes for funny, awkward, and embarrassing moments, oftentimes they can lead to broken relationships. Nathan Felix writes, Assumptions have the ability to destroy relationships, and indeed they do just that. Assumptions can be direct or indirect. A direct assumption is basically a thought that a person believes in regardless of the validity of the thought. The thought may have no connection in reality, but the person assumes that the thought is true and therefore responds emotionally based on the thoughts. Then there are the indirect assumptions. These are the assumptions that originate from an outside source, basically secondhand information that we assume to be accurate. Secondhand information is rarely reliable, but people still often assume that what they hear from others is portrayed accurately. The reason secondhand information is rarely accurate is because in conversations, people tend to hear the parts that are most relevant to their emotional needs at that moment. And when they relate it to others, it's out of context and only contains the information as they received it, not necessarily as it was meant to be received. There are many more, but these are very common assumptions that hurt relationships. Take the case of Jerry, a man in his 50s with a demanding job that sometimes keeps him out until 11 o'clock at night. As his marriage began to struggle a bit, his wife Jill assumed he was cheating because he would frequently be out so late. She assumed he was cheating for two reasons. One, a direct assumption, and the other, an indirect assumption. First, Jill had been long concerned, based on her own life history, that men are cheaters, and that at some point, Jerry would cheat and leave her. So when she started to pick up cues that triggered her own fears of abandonment, the automatic assumption was that she was being abandoned. This was her emotional need being fulfilled by a false thought. It's important to know that just because people feel an emotion doesn't necessarily mean it's accurate to the situation. 
This is commonly seen in phobias where people feel fear but are actually safe. This also works vice versa. A person can feel safe while still being in danger. Just because Jill felt abandoned doesn't mean she was being abandoned. The indirect assumption in the scenario was Jill's friend, who saw Jerry at a restaurant with a woman while he was supposed to be at a business meeting. Jill's friend promptly called Jill and reported this to her. What the friend didn't know was that the woman Jerry was out to dinner with was the business meeting. But with Jill's emotional need being the need to fulfill a fantasy of being abandoned, she first assumed that her husband's information was accurate, that this was a date outside of the marriage rather than a business meeting, regardless of the reality of the situation. What leads to toxicity is when people take these assumptions and run with them. When people of a deep emotional need, such as Jill's need to be abandoned, people become so attached to these needs that they actually prefer their assumptions as opposed to reality when in this emotional space. They'd rather believe the hearsay or rather believe their own thoughts than the realities because it validates the emotions that they really want to be experiencing. I find this to be quite common with people in states of anger. When angry, people tend to look for information that will validate and perpetuate their anger rather than resolve the issue, perhaps because it would be too shaming and embarrassing to learn their anger is based on something not based in reality. The more assumptions people make and believe, the better chance this will get in the way of all relationships, not just romantic, but with family, friends, and even ourselves as well. People's assumptions can cascade into a snowball of unrealities, and soon it becomes unclear what we've manifested in our own selves and what has actually happened in reality. Sadly, Jerry and Jill eventually got divorced, Jerry having never cheated on Jill. As Christians, we often make wrong assumptions about God, about other people's relationship with God, and even about how God views us based on what we see happening in life. So let's learn some biblical principles or guidelines about some spiritual assumptions we make as we continue our sermon series, Voyager, looking at the journeys of the Apostle Paul as recorded in the book of Acts. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Acts chapter 28 as we study verses 1 to 10. Acts chapter 28, verses 1 to 10. Now, as you're turning to this passage, Remember that the Apostle Paul was on his way to Rome, having appealed to Caesar after being unjustly accused by the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. While being transported to Rome under the guardianship of a centurion named Julius, they had tried to sail to Italy, which Paul advised against because it was at the end of the sailing season and the winds had already shifted. However, the captain of the ship and the centurion didn't agree and tried to press on towards Italy, but unsurprisingly were caught in a major storm. Having fought this storm for two weeks, everyone on board was resigned to the fact that they would perish in the storm. When Paul then assured them that God had revealed to him that the ship may be lost, but everyone on board would be saved because it was God's will that he will make it to Rome. And that's exactly what happened. The ship was wrecked but everyone was saved, and they made it onto a beach of an island. And this is where we pick up the story. 
I read now verses 1 to 3 of Acts chapter 28. Now, when they had escaped, they then found out that the island was called Malta, and the natives showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and made us all welcome because of the rain that was falling and because of the cold. But when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. The Bible tells us that the ship had wrecked off the coast of Malta, which was a small island just 100 kilometers south of Sicily in the Mediterranean Sea. The locals were extremely kind to all the survivors of the shipwreck and made a fire for them, presumably by the beach, for them to keep warm because it was raining and the weather was cold. Paul was helping the locals with maintaining the fire and gathered wood sticks to fuel the fire. When he put the wood in the fire, a poisonous snake, probably hidden in the firewood, was driven out by the heat of the fire and attacked Paul, bit him, and fastened its fangs into Paul's hands. The venom would have immediately been injected into Paul's body and work its way into his bloodstream. With this terrible incident, if you were someone on the beach and saw what had occurred, what would you be thinking? Oh, what bad luck Paul had. He survived the shipwreck, but would now die on the beach. Or perhaps, as others may say, you think, well, quote-unquote, karma strikes again, as he got what he deserved being a prisoner. Or even perhaps you assume Paul must be guilty because God wouldn't let anyone escape justice, so God was punishing him. Would any one of us assume that the snake bite was a good thing? Look what the locals thought in verse 4. So when the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer whom, though he has escaped the sea, yet justice does not allow to live. The locals saw the viper hanging from Paul's hand, and they immediately assumed that Paul must have done something terrible. They assumed that he was a murderer, because remember, there were other prisoners on the ship that wrecked. It wasn't just Paul. So they thought because the sea didn't rightfully take him, then even if he survived, he wouldn't get away with his crimes. True justice wouldn't allow Paul to live, the locals thought. But this would be the wrong assumption because we know that Paul was not a murderer and in fact innocent of the charges leveled against him from the various trials he underwent. But you know, my friends, in many ways, we're like the locals observing what had just happened and assuming the wrong things. Isn't it that in our perspective, when we see something bad happening to someone, we immediately assume they must deserve it because no one escapes justice, no one escapes karma or fate. They must have done something wrong. While we may assume this in the Christian life, that is not how we are to respond. While it may or may not be true, we simply don't know because we are not the judge of that person. We don't know everything, nor do we see everything. We don't know what God is doing to allow these challenging things to happen in the life of someone else. And since we don't know, we don't need to guess and assume in fact, the Bible tells us that instead of assumptions, we should be showing care and compassion to people who are going through great difficulties. We should be helping people in need. You know, it's easy to look at what transpired and assume many bad things. But as a follower of Jesus Christ, we are called to give people the benefit of the doubt. We are to err on the side of grace. 
to assume the best of someone unless it's so obvious what is happening. No, it doesn't mean we should be naive and always be fooled. But when we don't know the circumstances and facts, then don't make assumptions. Simply come alongside those who are suffering and provide help. Show them care, compassion, and grace. You see, spiritual assumption number one is this. When something bad happens to someone, don't assume they must have done something wrong. When something bad happens to someone, don't assume they must have done something wrong. This is what many of Job's friends in the Bible assumed of him when he experienced all the sufferings he went through, which was not because of anything he did as revealed in the Bible. The Bible describes Job as a righteous man. Job was going through these challenges in life for God's greater glory. But his friends insisted Job must have done something wrong and kept insisting that he should repent and ask God for forgiveness so that he can be restored. This is a dangerous spiritual assumption that can lead to bad theology. Imagine what must have been going through Job's mind. What did I do to deserve this? I've already repented. Why is this still happening to me? It would lead him to more despair, being told over and over again by his friends this wrong assumption, which is simply bad theology. Because not everything that happens to us is because we are being punished by God because we did something wrong. Dave Burchett writes, State Delegate Bob Marshall of Manassas, Virginia, says disabled children are God's punishment to women who have aborted their first pregnancy. He made that statement at a press conference to oppose state funding for Planned Parenthood. Marshall said, The number of children who are born subsequent to a first abortion with handicaps have increased dramatically. Why? Because when you abort the firstborn of any, nature takes its vengeance on the subsequent children. In the Old Testament, the firstborn of every being, animal and man, was dedicated to the Lord. There's a special punishment, Christians would suggest. Dave disagrees. As a Christian, I would suggest nothing of the kind. Mr. Marshall's declaration of God's intent is staggering in its arrogance. Is every child born after the mother has had an abortion delivered with handicaps? Of course not. Are some children born with handicaps to moms who never had an abortion? Of course. Joni and I are the parents of a little girl who was born with a profound birth defect. She lived 18 months. Joni never had an abortion. But we did have a Christian, quote-unquote, friend who suggested that there might be a sin in our lives that led to her birth defect. That was really hurtful. Some of the events surrounding her birth and life led to my first book, When Bad Christians Happen to Good People. I do not question Mr. Marshall's heart to protect the unborn. I share that desire. I do strongly disagree with his casting shame and doubt instead of stating his case for the value of life with grace and truth. In John chapter 9, when Jesus was asked by his disciples what caused the blindness of a man from birth, Jesus' reply was, you're asking the wrong question. You're looking for someone to blame. There is no such cause effect here. Instead, look for what God can do. And in Luke chapter 13, Jesus was asked if some from Galilee murdered by Pilate were worse sinners than others in Galilee. Jesus' answer was, that is not why they suffered, but then changed to a more important subject and called for individual repentance, lest they perish themselves. 
You see, my friends, while God will discipline and punish because of our sins, we don't know if what someone is going through is because of their sins or not. That is not up to us to judge and assume. We are simply to come alongside them, to sympathize, empathize, and show our care and concern as Jesus would have done Himself. Remember, He wept with those who were mourning the death of a loved one instead of saying, it is because of your sins that there is death in the world. He simply wept and cared for them. I read now verses 5 and 6. But He shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. However, they were expecting that He would swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But after they had looked for a long time and saw no harm come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. The Bible tells us that Paul shook off the snake and didn't suffer any ill effects from the snake bite. The locals kept watching Paul to see when he would succumb to the snake venom. There was no doubt in their mind that Paul would die from the snake bite. They knew that the snake was poisonous and death was inevitable for the victim. But after a long time of observing Paul, who probably just went about his business of collecting wood for the fire, they realized that Paul didn't suffer any ill effects of the venom. So they changed their mind about him from being a prisoner to now being a god. Now you may think that's a good thing that the locals now thought Paul was a god, but in actuality, it is not a good thing. Remember in Acts chapter 14, when the people in Lystra thought Barnabas was the Greek god Zeus? and Paul was the Greek god Hermes, what did Paul and Barnabas do? They immediately told the people that they were not gods, but mere humans, and that they should worship the one true and living God. While it was not mentioned in this chapter, I'm sure Paul would have done the same thing he did in Lystra and pointed out the fact that he was not a god and then directed them to the god that he worshipped, the one true and living God. And from these verses, we have our second spiritual assumption, number two. When something good happens to someone, don't assume they must be special. When something good happens to someone, don't assume they must be special. Remember, my friends, when something good happens to you or someone else, it is because of God's grace and mercy. It is not because we're more deserving than someone else. And while God does bless in this life and in the life to come, those who are obedient we shouldn't automatically assume that somehow they're more special or more loved by God. Everything good that happens to us and what we have is because of God's grace and mercy. And that's why I've said it many a times, there's nothing we can do or not do that will make God love us more or love us less. We are all loved with an eternal, everlasting love. As His children, There's no need to compare with others because God's love is equally bestowed upon us. The reason this principle is so important is because oftentimes we look up to people just because it seems they're successful in the eyes of the world, or they seem to live a blessed life, or they seem to always be winning in life, and in some cases, they actually hit the jackpot in the lottery, or they seem to always be lucky or to have good fortune. And so we wrongly assume that since outwardly they seem to have a blessed life, then God's hand of blessings must be upon them or that God's special favor is with them. But the problem is those outward things are not how the Scriptures tell us 
Our lives are God-approved. Our lives are approved by God when we faithfully live out the truths of the Scriptures and bear such visible spiritual fruits that people can see Christ in us through the way we speak and the way we act. That, my friends, is a God-approved life. But our shallow world looks only at outwardly successful people and assume they are special and must be followed. I can tell you that as a pastor, I've talked to many successful people whose lives are really messed up. They themselves do not think they're very special, and so you shouldn't think they're so special as well. In our Asian culture, if someone wins the lottery, everyone wants to have them around thinking somehow their good luck will rub off on them. In the USA, when a certain gas station sells the winning Powerball lottery ticket, the next day, everyone goes to the same gas station thinking that somehow some of the gas station's luck will rub off when they play the lottery. And yet even history proves that this is not true, as I know of no single gas station in the U.S. that has sold more than two winning multi-million dollar Powerball ticket. Luck and blessings cannot be rubbed off and gained through osmosis. All the things that we have, all of the blessings in life, comes because of the grace of God. You know, it's funny, but in board games and in activities that involve the roll of a dice, I've had people come up to me and hopefully jokingly ask me to blow on their dice or ask for permission to rub the dice on my sleeve. I ask them why. They say so I can get a lucky roll because you're a pastor and closer to God, right? Well, with that logic, if it were true, I should be winning all dice games, win every board game that I play, win every lottery or bingo game I enter, which I don't play, by the way, and all my stocks and mutual fund picks would be winners. But guess what? My losing streak is quite high, and I've never won anything really big. Therefore, my prayers are not any more effective than yours. In fact, James chapter 5, verse 16 tells us that the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. That means if you're walking rightly with God, then your prayers get to God's ears with the same equal force as mine, assuming I'm also walking with the Lord. Also, we should be thinking wisely, logically, and with discernment that just because something great or fortunate happened to one person doesn't mean it will happen to you or even happen to the same person again. For example, if you were to fly to the island of Malta and build a fire and try to simulate a poisonous snake biting you and thinking you will live, that is a very dangerous game to play because most likely you will die from the bite. Sadly, there are some rural churches in the U.S. and in certain parts of the world that practice so-called snake handling as a part of their worship to God. These misguided pastors in those churches will handle poisonous snakes as a sign of God's power upon them. They misuse Mark chapter 16, verse 18, and Luke chapter 10, verse 19, in conjunction with this story to tell their congregants that they will be protected even if the poisonous snakes bite them. The pastor will even refuse medical treatments when bitten because they believe they will survive as a sign of their great faith in God. And yet many pastors have died practicing this unbiblical show of faith through snake handling. The news is full of dead pastors who take part in this unbiblical practice. 
Just because Paul didn't die when the snake bit him doesn't mean all Christians will not die from a snake bite. Again, just because it happened to someone else doesn't mean it will happen to you the same way. That's why I want to caution Christ's followers to remember that while testimonies and feel-good stories are great, they serve as a great encouragement to you of what our amazing God can do, don't be too disappointed if it doesn't happen in your case because God may have another plan for you in your life. It doesn't mean He loves you any less. It just means in His perfect will, He has a plan for your life that fits perfectly for you, not like someone else's story. Because if you listen to testimonies thinking that what happens to other Christians is going to happen to me, you may walk away bitter, angry, and confused if it doesn't. Testimonies and stories of miracles and feel-good stories only serve to encourage us to see the amazing God we worship, and we rightly offer praise to Him, not serving as an example of what must happen in our situation. I read now verses 7 to 10. In that region, there was an estate of the leading citizen of the island, whose name was Publius, who received us and entertained us courteously for three days. And it happened that the father of Publius lay sick of a fever and dysentery. Paul went into him and prayed, and he laid his hands on him and healed him. So when this was done, the rest of those on the island who had diseases also came and were healed. They also honored us in many ways, and when we departed, they provided such things as were necessary. The Bible tells us that the highest Roman official on the island of Malta, Publius, showed great hospitality to Paul and his traveling party. And it just happened that his father was very ill. So through the power of the living God, Paul was able to heal Publius's father. When the inhabitants of the island got wind and word of this miraculous healing, those who were sick with various diseases came to be healed by God through Paul. Because of these miraculous healings, Paul and his traveling group were honored and they departed for Italy with all the provisions they needed. In spite of the shipwreck and Paul getting bitten by a poisonous snake, it was evident that the power of the living God was very much alive and at work to bring about His intended purpose. And this is an example of our third spiritual assumption, number three. Do not assume adversities indicate God isn't powerfully at work and bringing about His intended purpose. Do not assume adversities indicate God isn't powerfully at work and bringing about His intended purpose. This is the natural assumption that when we experience challenges and adversities, that God isn't at work or isn't powerful enough to handle my problems. That would be the wrong assumption. What we have to understand is that oftentimes, God is using the adversities we go through to powerfully bring about His intended purpose for His glory and for our best. It all began with Paul getting a snake bite while gathering firewood. That bite didn't kill Paul, so they thought he was a god, which allowed the most influential person on the island to take notice of him and extend kindness. That person, Publius, happened to a very sick father whom God healed through Paul which allowed all those on the island to know about Paul. And as they brought their own sick friends and relatives to Paul and were healed by God, the living God that Paul believed in and the gospel message he preached 
were now made known to the entire island. So you can say that it was an unlucky snake bite that allowed Jesus Christ to be known throughout the island of Malta. Now that you know this, would you now be okay with a figurative snake bite in your life? I had asked you earlier in the message, if you were at the beach when Paul was bitten, would you be able to comment, this can turn out to be a good thing? Perhaps now you will be able to do so. Would you be okay with experiencing the adversities that come so suddenly and unexpectedly, knowing that God will use it to bring about His intended purpose and for His ultimate glory? Can you declare as the patriarch Job did, you give and take away, but praise be the name of the Lord. My friends, there are a lot of spiritual assumptions we make about God, others, and ourselves based on what we see and experience. But without knowing all the facts, our wrong assumptions may cause us to think ill of others, sever a relationship, or become bitter and angry at God. You know, I remember a church member telling me that another church member was mad at me because I had spoken about them in one of my messages. I asked the church member which sermon it was because I don't remember talking about that person, and I don't do that. So he checked with the other person, and the other person said he actually didn't listen to the sermon, but he simply read the sermon title, and he just knew Pastor Stephen was talking about him. I almost laughed out loud when I heard this because it was so unbelievable. You mean you just looked at a sermon title and didn't actually listen to the message? Now that's making a huge assumption that sadly had unfortunate consequences. My friends, let us remember these spiritual assumptions. Spiritual assumption number one. When something bad happens to someone, don't assume they must have done something wrong. Spiritual assumption number two. When something good happens to someone, don't assume they must be special. Spiritual assumption number three. Don't assume adversities indicate God isn't powerfully at work and bringing about His intended purpose. My friends, let us read the Bible to know what God has revealed about how He operates and works so that we will not make wrong assumptions based on what we see around us and experience. Let us also remember to fact-check with others to ensure that we don't wrongly assume things of others that can destroy lives and friendships. May the Lord grant wisdom and discernment. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for Your Word. Often, because we don't know what the Scriptures say, because we don't know how You have revealed Yourself, we don't know how You operate, we often wrongly get mad at You. We often wrongly get mad at others. Father, I pray that we would all check our hearts, that we will always make the effort to get the facts straight, that we won't allow assumptions to cloud our thinking, that we won't allow assumptions to destroy our relationships. We need your wisdom and discernment, Lord. Help us to be the Christ followers you so desire us to be so that we can influence the world through how we live. Challenge us, Lord, with your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.